Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 29 Sonic Boom Search Cemetery Structure I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel. This episode, it's Sonic Booms and Scientific Sophistication, Lois's Searching Skills and Cemetery Scene, Story Structure, and the Psychology of Selflessness and Slavery. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. So Clark has learned to fly, and it's completely transformed his life. However, last commentary episode, I didn't talk about some of the collateral effects of flight, mainly for time, and so that I could end on a more romantic notion of flight rather than a technical one. That said, I can't pass up the opportunity to briefly talk about Superman's sonic booms. Sci-fi writer Larry Niven was born in the same year as Superman, and he wrote the infamous Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex as a satirical indictment of how Superman, a child's fantasy, becomes absurd if allowed to enter the domain of mature adults. By Niven's reckoning, Superman didn't hold up to science or to sex. In the following clip, Niven continues his criticism of the character by discussing the implications of Superman's tremendous speed. If you do a hard science fiction analysis, you get some peculiar results. Look out there and tell me how many windows you see. If you had a Kryptonian patrolling metropolis every night, you couldn't keep the glass in any window. Why is that? <laughs> Sonic booms. Any emergency. <laughs> well, he doesn't seem to consider uh, side effects when he makes his move. There was one case in which he had to catch a bullet. A bullet fired at Lois Lane's forehead from across a room. Superman is outside patrolling the city when he sees this going on. He dives. Now, he's got to do about six or seven times the speed of sound to catch the bullet. And the shock wave he'd pick up would be tremendous. He's a man-sized object. He's, he's going through a wall, too, at uh, six or seven times the speed of an artillery shell. There's going to be shrapnel, there's going to be a shock wave, and everyone in that room is going to be mush. So here's the thing. Niven's criticism that comic book superheroes are for children with no grasp of science or adult relations is one of the reasons for the 80s explosion of comics geared towards older, more adult fans. Comics evolved to encompass a broader audience, which cared about continuity and consequences more than merely magical fairy tales. That's not inherently wrong or right, better or worse, but the change proves that the concepts were robust enough to continue with the times. Each change comes with its adherents and detractors, and while change isn't inherently good, we shouldn't fall victim to believing that the past is inherently good either. I think it's fine to indulge in nostalgia as long as we're aware of the tint of our glasses and that we're fair to our perceptions of the present. However, John Hodgman takes an even stronger stance. I said it before, nostalgia is a toxic impulse. This 
this idea that the, the things were better before is usually wrong, and the idea that we can get back what we had is always wrong. Formed on an on a nostalgic delusion that somehow we can undo progress and go back to a better time, a time which was not better, and certainly we can't go back at all. But the truth is, you can't you can't go you can't go back. You can only go forward. And Neil deGrasse Tyson of the Hayden Planetarium weighs in as well. Now, this does fit into this quote that you once told The New Yorker, which was, in practically every idea we have as humans, the older version of it is not better than the newer version, but we sort of have this kind of weird, unrealistic nostalgia for the past. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think if uh, the people who make discoveries are not the ones who are nostalgic about the past. They might read the past and learn what mistakes were made and learn how clever people can be and fine. But to wish you were still in the past, uh, I certainly don't. <laughs> uh, I always think about the future. And maybe some of that is just being American because we, we kind of like doing that. But I'd like to think that another part of it is just being human. There's what the world is today. Can I make it a better place tomorrow? Can I use my intellect as a scientist to lessen the suffering of others and create a future that we can all be proud of? Part of the problem that he has with nostalgia is that we take advancements in progress for granted. And this kind of inched up on us on a level where most people who use their cell phone are not stupefied by how powerful it is. Yet it's all science. So I fear that people in modern times are taking science for granted, thinking that, of course, we've always had cell phones. We've always had GPS satellites. And if you do so, then you are disenfranchising yourself on the moving frontier of scientific innovation. Because you will think to yourself that you don't need to continue to innovate because you have everything that you need or that you want. And and that's a, that's a dangerously short-sighted posture to have. Some may forget that the modern, more psychologically nuanced interpretation, which gives more credit to nurture in the formation of character, is one of those advancements that we didn't always have. By the same token, it's only natural to keep increasing the layers of nuance and sophistication to the character over time in order to keep up with the scientific sophistication of our society as it has developed in leaps and bounds since Superman's creation. Remember that Superman pre-existed humans breaking the sound barrier, the atomic bomb, and NASA. Nonetheless, Superman as a mythology and a concept is robust enough to interact with the modern and the mature concepts of science, sex, philosophy, religion, politics, and more. He doesn't have to at every turn, but he isn't just relegated to being just a children's story either. I doubt that Niven would have guessed that 30 years later, Superman would carefully render the collateral effects of flight on film. Rather than run and hide from those things, Superman has embraced them. Now, we went into a lot of this stuff before, but as a quick refresher, Superman's flight here shows off a lot of other parameters to his powers. It shows his durability ability and his physiology some. Superman doesn't block out from the g-forces of acceleration. He doesn't have trouble with the altitude changes or the dramatic changes in pressure from going to sea level to the edge of space. He doesn't have respiratory trouble from the speed or any of those varied environments as well. He doesn't freeze from the cold of space or boil from the friction with the air. Joy Lynn provides some of these other collateral effects as performed by James Arnold Taylor. Okay, let's say a 
bullet is about to hit a beautiful damsel in distress. So our hero swoops in at super speed, grabs her, and carries her to safety. That sounds very romantic. But in reality, that girl will probably suffer more damage from the hero than the bullet if he moved her at super speed. Newton's first law of motion deals with inertia, which is the resistance to a change in its state of motion. When the girl at rest begins accelerating to reach the speed within seconds, her brain would crash into the side of her skull, and when she stops suddenly, her brain would crash into the other side of her skull, turning her brain into mush. The brain is too fragile to handle the sudden movement. It so is every part of her body, for that matter. Remember, it's not the speed that causes the damage because the astronaut survived Apollo 10. It's the acceleration or sudden stop that causes our internal organs to crash into the front of our bodies the way we move forward in a bus when the driver slams on the brakes. What the hero did to the girl is mathematically the same as running her over with a space shuttle at maximum speed. She probably died instantly at the point of impact. And Jake Roper talks about some of the other collateral effects of such speeds using the Marvel mutant Quicksilver. Not to mention that going 10 times the speed of sound would cause a shockwave to form in front of him. The air around him would be compressed 5.7 times and would heat up to 750 two degrees Fahrenheit, almost three times the boiling point of blood. Speaking of blood, at that temperature, your blood would become a supercritical fluid, having properties of both liquid and gas, and it would start to ooze out of your body. Now, this would only occur if you were four inches or closer to a full speed Quicksilver. The air surrounding Quicksilver would be traveling at 6,311 miles per hour. Now to put that into perspective, a Category 5 tornado, which is as high as the Fujita tornado scale goes, says that at that point cars will be flung over 330 feet, houses will be ripped out of the ground, and all manner of destruction will occur. And that is with wind speeds at 318 miles per hour, almost 20 times less than Quicksilver's. However, the incredible wind speed would pick up almost everything in his path. Things as small as pebbles, sand, and coins would be thrown around with as much kinetic energy as a bullet. So you wouldn't have to be close to Quicksilver to bear witness to and become a potential victim of the death and destruction that would be left in his wake. Given the effects of such a sonic boom, you can imagine an entire protesting crowd ducking in response to one going off as Superman leaves Capitol Hill upset. Now, while the collateral effects are largely presented as a limitation, it does suggest some useful applications. In 1976, the Intembe hostage rescue, also known as Operation Thunderbolt, was largely regarded as a success, but it also involved the tragic loss of hostages who attempted to run during the rescue and who were hit in the crossfire. This spurred the invention of the flashbang or stun grenade, a device which could incapacitate hostages and hostage takers alike without permanent injury by temporarily physically neutralizing everyone, allowing them to be safely taken into custody. Indeed, Superman used it in this fashion in Superman issue number 217. So super speed with collapse lateral effects does create limitations, but it also creates possibilities like thunderclaps and sonic booms as tools. In fact, they're used that way in nature as well. And there is ongoing research to mitigate their effects. So are sonic booms a recent creation? Not exactly. While we try to find ways to silence them, a few other animals have been using sonic booms to their advantage. The gigantic Diplodocus may have been capable of cracking its tail faster than sound. 
at over 1,200 kilometers per hour, possibly to deter predators. Some types of shrimp can also create a similar shock wave underwater, stunning or even killing prey at a distance with just a snap of their oversized claw. So while we humans have made great progress in our relentless pursuit of speed, it turns out that nature was there first. As mentioned in the above clip, NASA is presently studying so-called quiet sonic booms as a mechanism for flying supersonic aircraft over land with limited collateral effects. So what we're trying to do is really to eliminate sonic boom as a problem for supersonic aircraft. We'd like to be able to have future supersonic aircraft that can fly overhead that create basically no noise um, that you hear on the ground. Now what we're hoping to do is is to reduce that bang to a thump. So instead of you, you'd basically hear a thump thump, almost like the sound of a car door closing in the distance. So down the road, Superman might develop this knowledge and this ability before NASA and prove Niven's critique of Superman ultimately wrong. Sonic booms are fascinating, but I'll leave you to look that up on your own. While Superman causes these collateral effects now and in the film, I maintain that the scope and the nature of Superman's powers can grow over time with the cinematic universe just as it did in the comics. In the cinematic universe, I wouldn't mind if it acted as a means of differentiating Superman from The Flash. But further down the road, Superman picking up some abilities or tips from The Flash on how to use his speed without as many collateral effects, or perhaps special applications of speed, would be really neat. Superman's powers are a black box, so the filmmakers have liberty on how those powers will develop. There's a term for this in physics. It's called a black box. It refers to a system where you can see what goes in, you can see that something different comes out. And you wonder, like, what happened there in the middle? But you can't see it. Anyways, that's a long way off. We don't even know how much Superman's powers have changed between Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, if at all. The point is, at least for this film, the filmmakers were deliberate in showing the collateral effects of his speed again and again, which serves as a critical limitation and rebuttal to any questions or criticisms based around Superman's use, or perhaps lack of use, of super speed. A lot of the criticisms arise from assuming that Superman can simply accomplish whatever he wants in the blink of an eye. And while we might get there eventually, that isn't the Superman that we're presented with in this film. Okay, on to Lois's voiceover, and let's tackle the lines and then the images scene by scene. How do you find someone who has spent a lifetime covering his tracks? You start with the urban legends that have sprung up in his wake. Yeah, All of the friends of a friend who claimed to have seen him. For some, he was a guardian angel. Yeah. For others, a cipher, a ghost who never quite fit in. Well, I was saying we were kind of coming up towards the oil rig. As you work your way back in time, the stories begin to form a pattern. Looking for Pete Ross, do you know him? Yeah, he works at the IHOP. The voiceover basically has two main beats, her rhetorical question answered by explaining a bit of her process, and then Lois's assessment of what she's uncovering. Granted, Lois is making an assumption that her mystery man has spent a lifetime on Earth, but it's a reasoned conclusion. As we briefly discussed in our Ellesmere Island episode, even in this brief encounter, Lois could learn a lot about Clark. He speaks English, he has an American accent, he seems just as surprised at the amount of damage that the robot sentry could do as 
she was. Clearly, he was arriving to the ship and not coming from it. He had a lack of material possession. And finally, Joe had bothered to falsify his employment records. So while it's possible that Clark maybe just popped up on Earth, given the age of the vessel and her first-hand observations, it wasn't an unreasonable guess that Joe has been on Earth for some time. Lois starts to put together the clues and use her skills as an investigative journalist to find Clark. And it's a little funny, but a lot of people ask, how did Lois find Clark, when that's exactly what Lois's rhetorical question and subsequent answer is addressing. So how do you find somebody who's spent a lifetime covering their tracks? Lois answers it. You start with the urban legends that have sprung up in his wake. Now granted, she has a lot more clues than just that, but the urban legends are the pool that she whittles down into the solid leads that she can investigate. This is hardly a new or radical idea to the Superman mythos. Now what are you doing? Just catching up on Clark's scrapbook. Your scrapbook, you mean? I still don't know that Clark would approve of this. Oh, tish toss, Jonathan. A mother's got a rat to be proud of her son, hasn't she? And what if a burglar broke in here and found it, eh? What then? What if people got to know of what Clark can do? We don't get burglars in Smallville. <laughs> anyway, what could they tell from these cuttings? Floodwaters diverted. Ocean liner raised. Bridge holds till last minute. Mm. But they just think I was a strange old lady who collects stories about accidents that didn't quite happen. Well, what about this one? Um... Uh... Child saved from mountain fall claims flying angel caught him as he fell. Jonathan, only the National Informer picked up on that story. Now who on earth would believe them? In Burns' Man of Steel, Martha Kent kept a scrapbook of Clark's exploits, one that Clark wasn't aware of. And while I'm sure that Clark shares some of his adventures with his parents, I doubt he shared them all. Nonetheless, Martha would dutifully comb the papers and find stories that she knew applied to her son and proudly saved them. Lois might have have had a similar practice. Based on Arctic Cargo's employment records, she might have had an idea of when Joe started, giving her a time frame. Then she'd comb through the urban legends, which describe somebody tall, dark, and handsome, or which required a feat of strength, heat vision, or durability. As a quick aside, if you consider the fact that Lois had to cast and start with a wide net, something fun to think about is how that phrase, urban legend, has often repeatedly been used to describe the Batman. So imagine if Lois's investigation also picked up on hints of others out there. Waller's things, the Gotham vigilante, and the supernatural, and so on. Wouldn't it be interesting if she had developed some early leads into other traditional DCU figures, which Clark might pick up in his spare time afterwards, to see if he's alone in his extraordinary powers. But anyways, Lois gives us insight into her process. It's hard, laborious, time-consuming work. She's following the hearsay in a game of telephone. As she says, friend of a friend who claimed to have seen him. Now briefly, this addresses something that we've brought up in the past about the willingness to speak to Lois openly about their experiences and assisting her in her search. Now remember, all of these interviews happened before Superman's public debut where he literally saves the planet. So these early interviews with Lois are with a fellow rescuee and a friend of a friend. I know it isn't likely used that way here, but it could be in the sense that they're all one way or another a friend to Clark. Now we've talked about all this in past episodes. You can listen to those on your own. Here's David Goyer's take on the open secret of Smallville. Pete Ross, I'd like to talk to you about an accident that occurred when you were younger, a school bus that went into the river. In our mind, even though we were never explicit about this, Pete Ross knew Clark was Superman. He just never told anyone. We liked the idea that there were people in Smallville, not just Pete, but maybe Lana, who was, you know, his first girlfriend, a few others who probably 
knew Clark was Superman because he, they'd seen things over the years or they'd heard things and that kind of tracked with when, when Clark decided to introduce himself to the world that sort of filled in the gaps for them. And we liked the fact that there probably was this open secret amongst some of the people in Smallville. If you don't believe that a small town will protect someone who's different from outsiders, I recommend listening to the true story of Mayor Stu Remison of Silverton, Oregon, where a small town protected one of their own despite him being so different. I'll put a link in the show notes. Lois explains that she's worked backwards through time and observed a pattern, and she gives an assessment of this man whose name still eludes her. For some, he was a guardian angel. For others, a cipher, a ghost who never quite fit in. These lines are a little melodramatic, but it does fit that sort of classical styled narrative journalism. And as a quick aside, now playing in theaters is End of the Tour with Jesse Eisenberg engaged in that kind of journalism. So if you like people talking, this is that kind of film. Uh, anyways, actions speak louder than words. But clearly the picture coming together here for her was somebody who was a protector, but somebody who was also lonely and distant as she assesses in that belief that Clark wants to fit in. Two out of three of her descriptors are supernatural, angel, and ghost. A cipher or encryption or puzzle meant that he was not readily understood by those around him and apparently many audience members. The ghost implies a ethereal transience, not quite being able to touch or be in the world as solidly as he'd like. As Joanna Walsh put it in her object lessons book on hotels, I'm not a guest so much as I'm a ghost. And like a ghost, I'm in transition. I might have left somewhere, but I never really arrive anywhere else. So here's Snyder on the sequence. All right, I'm back to talk a little bit about Lois investigating the mystery man that saved her. One of the important things when we were conceiving the film itself was to create a Lois that was intelligent, a go-getter, a good reporter. And I feel like we created this sequence to help you in a pretty short period of time sort of see all those things. And in shooting this sequence, uh, we really had to go to all these different locations and create this investigation and leader, of course, back to Smallville. I think you can tell that Snyder is proud of the economy of this scene, and it does convey a lot with very little. I'm tempted to say that I wish there had been more steps showing additional locales and interviewees that we hadn't already seen in the film up to this point. That would give a richer sense of both Clark's journey and Lois unraveling it. However, I can understand the confusion that that might introduce and the disinterest of some. So that's why they kept it short and clear. Interjecting other steps and other locales and other persons that we hadn't seen already might jar the audience out of the montage and they wonder where are we what was that who was that i want to see that rather than just go with the flow of this interstitial montage and i think those additional stops are still implicit in the dialogue even if they're not shown but even if we just go by what we see it's still a substantial investigation and that's maybe easy to overlook let's just take a second to think about how much time it would have taken lois would have to travel from the arctic back to metropolis just to get shot down by Perry and to leak her story. And then from Metropolis by the Chesapeake Bay, she'd travel all the way back to Arctic Cargo to interview Jed. From Arctic Cargo to Cassidy's to interview Chrissy. And then from Cassidy's to the Debbie Sue to be ignored by Haroldson, the boat captain, but then to find those three U.S. Coast Guardsmen who flew during the oil rig rescue. You can see all three in the wide shot, but only two of them in the close-up. And they're pantomiming the oil rig Derek falling over and then Clark holding 
holding it up. I think it's deliberate between that and the Smallville gas attendant scene. The line is, and as you work your way back in time, the stories begin to form a pattern. And so that suggests those unseen stories. But again, even if not, we go from there to the IHOP and Pete Ross, and then from there to the Kent farm and Martha, and finally to the cemetery and Clark. Now, a quick note about that gas attendant actually knowing who Pete Ross was, that suggests just how small a town Smallville might be. Perhaps a population of 5,000 or less, like Plano, Illinois, had for most of its history. Bob Woodward gives three tenets of investigative journalism, which can briefly be summarized as interviewing people, having documentation, and then authenticating the story with first-person verification by the reporter. One of the questions that persists in journalism is where do we get our information? And there are actually three tracks, and I think they apply to any story. The first, obviously, is people, but that doesn't mean just going to one person or one source. It means checking everything, talking to half a dozen or even a dozen people for a day story. If it's something longer, you want to totally surround and saturate the subject. Second track is documents. I have not really ever seen a story in a newspaper or on television or even on radio that couldn't be enhanced with some sort of documentation that would support or add more detail to what uh, the story is about. And I would tell an anecdote from my early reporting career to illustrate the importance of the third track. And I wrote up the story based on the document and handed it to the city editor. And he said, here's early copy. And he was delighted. And he said, wow, this is a front page story. Uh, And then he said, have you been there? And I said, no, I've got the document. No, it's authentic. He said, well, uh, it's two and a half blocks away, get your ass out of the chair and get over there. Now, I've cut that story for time, but basically Woodward discovers that the document was wrong and he narrowly missed out on naming the wrong party in the paper and avoided a serious lawsuit. And here we can see that Lois does all of these, speaking with at least nine people and having documentation on her mystery man, starting with a photograph and the falsified employment records, to getting to know about the bus incident. And of course, we see her doing all the legwork. In a sense, all or most of this has already been reported on before, since that's what she starts with, those urban legends. But as a professional, it's her job to take it out of being an urban legend and into a serious news story. The travel, the research, the dead ends, and the interviews, even with a fully cooperative witness, would have easily taken weeks. And even if all the stars aligned and Lois did nothing but fly from location to location and managed to get an interview the instant she landed, this whole endeavor still would have taken about a week. So this gives us a little insight into how deeply committed she is to this investigation. And meanwhile, the time frame that Clark is dealing with in the Arctic with Jor-El. He's probably not sitting in silence with Jor-El. Instead, he's had so many questions which were probably being answered. Note that by the time Lois arrives in Smallville, she likely knows who Clark is and has the outline of her story and the documentation to verify it. If for her, the story was simply about 
doubting the identity of her mystery man, she probably wouldn't even need to go to Smallville. However, she's engaging in those tenets of journalism, getting the first-hand story and considering the consequences and the capacity of her story to hurt. We've already discussed in the past the ambiguity of whether Pete said anything or not. You can listen to that analysis back in episode 9. And I think based on Martha's first few words to Clark later, the conversation between herself and Lois probably wasn't that long. Although, if I recall, that might have been one of the scenes that was trimmed for time. Now, having Lois know is a daring and a deliberate change to the mythos, to make a character that has existed since Action Comics number 1 more clearly competent and participatory in the story of Superman, someone who helps forge the Man of Steel. Lois traditionally has always been a strong female character, but she was still always being saved by Superman. Today, Lois is more proactive. She goes off and she does what she needs to do. You know, part of the canon is that Lois Lane doesn't know that Superman is Clark Kent, or certainly she didn't find out until much later. And we just thought, well, what if she found out? Would it be such a big deal? I'm a huge fan of Superman. I was a huge fan of the movies growing up. So when I thought of Lois, there's definitely ideas of what and who that was. But at the same time, to come at it from a new point of view, to me, it's very exciting. And it's, it's very freeing because she has been reimagined in so many ways over time. And this is sort of the modern imagining of Lois. I think it's much more of a partnership than it's been in the past between she and Superman. In a lot of ways, you know, she's the right partner for Superman. She's a reason to save the human race, you know? It's cool that he has that example right in front of him. She is obviously Superwoman in a societal sense. She opens Cal's eyes to an entirely new way of existing. He's so used to being private with who he is, and finally he got to share it with someone, and he could trust her. And she gave him the concept of a future on the planet. I think it takes her by surprise that it actually takes this person from another world to actually make her more human. His humanity actually brings about a change in her, and I think she comes to really respect and identify more with humanity by her experiences with Clark. Now, a couple of small notes. Martha's dog, Dusty, is not Hank, the dog in the tornado scene. Martha apparently works at Sears. She's wearing a blue Sears polo shirt, and she has a Sears lanyard. And the field still has corn, but Martha is likely not personally involved in the crops, so perhaps they're leasing the land or something like that. Both Pete and Martha provide some effective, mostly wordless performances. Pete's discomfort is immediately apparent, and Martha's expression says, the day has finally come. Well, we cut to Jonathan's grave marker, and one wonders on subsequent viewings if there was a body to bury. When Clark arrives, it's with a gentle whooshing, showing that he doesn't have to travel explosively at all times, and they have this exchange. I figured if I turned over enough stones, you'd eventually find me. Where are you from? What are you doing here? Let me tell your story. What if I don't want my story told? It's going to come out eventually. Somebody's going to get a photograph or figure out where you live. Well, and then I'll just disappear again. The only way you could disappear for good is to stop helping people altogether, and I sense that's not an option for you. My father believed that if the world found out who I really was, they'd reject me out of fear. 
Talking without turning is a bit of a trope, admittedly, but it's a way of establishing how well she's gotten to know Clark through the course of her investigation. It's something so easy to take for granted, but consider the scope of Clark's powers and the measures he's gone to keep his secret and how close to home literally Lois has hit for a hostile alien or a hostile journalist. This would be a powder keg, but both have shown extraordinary trust up to this meeting. Clark, who has lived his entire adult life on the run, let a journalist go having seen his face and powers. And Lois, meanwhile, has his identity, but met him privately and quietly rather than ambushing him or his loved ones with a camera crew. Lois by this point understands she's in no danger from Clark and wants to be his advocate. Clark, meanwhile, knows that this is somebody with compassion and integrity. He doesn't make threats, stonewall her, or hide. And she's not afraid and, in a sense, represents hope to him. Hope that he won't be rejected and might fulfill the hopes of his fathers. So let's break down some of these lines. I figured if I turned over enough stones, you'd eventually find me. So as I said earlier, this shows Lois's sense of trust and familiarity with Clark. As we discussed in episode 23, she leaked her initial story as a means of reaching out to and communicating with Clark. It shows that her investigation is part of that. And when turning over stones on the periphery of his life didn't work, eventually she got to his hometown. And that's why it's really easy to assume or believe that Martha or perhaps Pete picked up the phone and called called Clark to let him know somebody was in town investigating him, but as we've discussed in episode 9, that doesn't seem consistent with Clark's first exchange with Martha, or perhaps his eye contact with Pete. I think a slightly more consistent interpretation is that Clark has his own investigative chops, and he has reasonably kept tabs on Lois Lane. Remember that Jor-El has given him answers about his heritage, his powers, and his purpose, but that came at the cost of being incontrovertibly known on Earth before the military, and personally exposed before a journalist. His personal identity has changed, but also his potential status with respect to the entire planet. They know that there's a spaceship out there. Until Clark connects with the outside world, he doesn't know if the military has issued a public statement or if Lois is publishing all she knows to the world, putting any hope of a private life at risk. And so it would be very reasonable and present in his mind to check up on that journalist that saw his face, that he let go and who might have incentive to publish. He would do it himself because he doesn't want Martha to worry. So imagine his relief when he logs on and finds nothing but Woodburn's publication of Lois's leaked article, and how much more relieved when he reads the contents and understands that she's not afraid and wants to start a dialogue. And this meeting is proof of their mutual investigations. Where are you from? What are you doing here? Let me tell your story. Lois gets right to the crux of the questions and exactly what Clark has wondered and what makes him special and significant to the world. It's not what he can do, it's what he means and what his purpose is. At this point, Lois has gathered enough information to suspect that this is a lonely existence and not the first wave of an invasion. Although Clark has struggled to stay under the radar, he is so committed to helping people that he has risked that cloak of anonymity and unwittingly become an urban legend. He's not here to gather intelligence or act as a spy for some alien people. If he was, he's a terrible spy who can't help but bring attention to himself when saving the lives of ordinary people. On top of that, Clark has 
lived a humble, solitary, transient existence. If his intentions were infiltration and manipulation, power and guile, wouldn't a man as plainly attractive and capable as Clark find himself hobnobbing with the wealthy, powerful, and influential? This wasn't an alien trying to get into the highest levels of government, military, business, academia, fame, or fortune. This was the humble son of a farmer from Kansas. Instead, this seemed like a story worth telling. What if I don't want my story to be told? Of course, this is the crux of Clark's issue. It was never a question of whether he would or should help people. It's a question of whether helping people demands that he be known to the world. And even without knowing everything else that's going on with Clark, Lois's rebuttal makes it clear that she understands that much. It's going to come out eventually. Somebody's going to get a photograph or figure out where you live. And in fact, she's correct, certainly insofar as herself is concerned. She already has photographs and already did figure out where Clark lived. This is perhaps the hardest line to reconcile with an ongoing secret identity in the light of Batman v Superman. However, within the scope of Man of Steel, it does still work and our episode on the secret identity does cover that discussion. Clark's reply is something that people tend to dismiss or ignore. Then I'll just disappear again. We often take it for granted that if Superman's identity was ever exposed, well, he'd have to live with the consequences. Yet in this telling, Clark has been a nomad for the past 16 years or so. And note that technically, Lois hasn't found where Clark lives, partially because he's in a sense homeless. Clark has just recently been given the gift of flight, completely freeing him to enter and exit any situation practically at will. What stops him from starting over in a new corner of the globe, like he's been doing for the past 16 years. The only way you could disappear for good is to stop helping people altogether, and I sense that's not an option for you. And Lois spots the issue immediately. He could try to cut ties, go underground, and disappear, but he'd always show up as a blip on the radar because he can't help himself from helping people. Or can he? Clark preambles the story of the one painful time he didn't. My father believed that if the world found out who I really was, they'd reject me out of fear. And this is the prelude and the lens that he's using to explain the story, which is meant to give Lois a more complete picture of the facts and us as the audience, to show what happened the one time he was forced to decide between helping and revealing. I don't think he's forwarding a position or saying what is right or wrong. Quite the opposite. The story isn't flattering. It isn't romantic. It isn't pretty. Instead, Clark is unburdening himself to the first person that he can speak about this with openly and completely, asking her to judge the situation. He ends the story and the conversation with a question. What do you think? And it's not rhetorical. It's an honest question seeking an answer. He isn't trying to manipulate Lois into silence or threatening to give up rescuing people if she outs him. He's asking, was my father right? Was I right? Is it time yet? Can you accept me? Can the world? Is the world ready yet? All the questions that he's been asking the past 16 years. Lois's subsequent actions suggest that they don't have to decide right this moment or at this time. So the back and forth of this whole conversation, although concise, is logical and pointed. It gets to the heart of the issues without excessive exposition or flowery explanation like we just walked through. It's extremely economical and says just what needed to be said without rambling like I'm prone to. And continuing to show instead of tell, we're treated to 
the flashback rather than Clark's retelling of the tornado scene. So let's just address where we are in the story and its overall structure. As we've already discussed in episodes 24 and 25, we're still in the first act of the film. And the central theme of the first act is Clark's identity, revealed through his heritage, his present, and glimpses of his past as prophecy important of his prospects. We see Krypton, which provides his heritage, but also the hopes, dreams, and expectations placed upon Kal-El. Then we're shown the struggle for identity, and the struggle to meet those expectations without it. And finally, the question of identity is answered several times over through the end of this first act. First, Clark learns who he is from Jor-El. He gains flight to cement his approach to heroism. However, his arctic encounter with Lois means that his status quo with the world is potentially upset, and that raises that second question. Who is Clark in relation to the world? Is Lois going to out him? Is it time for him to out himself? Does he heed Jor-El's incitement to become a public example to humanity? And despite learning what Jor-El expects of him, that doesn't make it a given that he's going to be a public costumed superhero. That's still a crazy proposition. If anything, flight makes the way that he's already been living even more possible. However, Clark had been living that way to learn who he was and what his purpose was. And now that he had those things, did he have to keep living that way? Intuitively, I think the answer is no, which is in large part why he ends his wandering and he comes home to Martha. Of course, that doesn't determine what the road forward is. After Clark tells Lois his story, Lois essentially agrees with maintaining the status quo for now. We'll explore this angle more when we tackle the truck dialogue. But even after meeting Jor-El, he's essentially back to the same crossroad. In the truck, before the tornado, Clark was on the cusp of becoming Superboy. And here with Lois, Clark is on the cusp of becoming Superman. Even if Lois believes his story should be told, eventually, and Clark believes that it's his destiny to go public, given the cost of Jonathan's conviction, they don't have to decide that right now. This wasn't a permanent decision to keep hiding. It was merely an agreement that they had time to continue the conversation, considering the gravity of the choice. As the first act concludes before Zod's inciting ultimatum, the question of who Clark is in relation to Martha, now that he knows that he's from Krypton, is answered. And it is at that point a new status quo has been reached and the film could, in a sense, just end. Clark has his answers from Jor-El. Lois isn't going to out him until he's ready, and he's still Martha's son, taking a break from his years of searching before taking the next step. That's a complete first act arc, outside of the forces and impulses created by the tornado scene, which we'll discuss separately. So under this lens, it's clear why Zod's ultimatum upsets the status quo by nullifying the ability and the need to keep aliens a secret from humanity, and specifically outing Kal-El and summoning him to action. We'll go more in depth on Clark reuniting with Martha, but I'm raising all of this now to illustrate the sensible structure since the first act revolves around identity. Identity has always been a central pillar of the Superman mythos. Dr. Jared DeFife shares his analysis of Clark and the importance of identity formation. Conflict is interesting. It makes interesting characters. It makes interesting stories. The way people react and respond to adversity is what makes people psychologically interesting. Now here comes Superman who seems like he would have very few conflicts. Man of steel, bulletproof, faster than a speeding train, able to leap tall buildings in a single leap. There seems as there would be very few things that would get in his way and cause conflict. But 
what is it about um, Superman that, or Clark Kent, that, that is interesting or psychologically appealing? And psychological researchers have looked at how do we think about identity, our personal identity? And some researchers have developed what they call a two-polarity model of experience, that identity is formed of two basic issues, one being our self-definition and the other being our level of interpersonal relatedness. And so how does this apply to Clark Kent's Superman? Let's look at his level of self-definition. How does someone with all of these superpowers, how do they come to understand themselves? How does he form a moral code? How does he apply his powers in a way that's true to himself and that he can feel good about and that, that's helpful? And we see young Clark Kent struggle with that identity formation. This is really the time in his story where he comes to those questions of how do I cope with my powers but also fit in? How does he define who he is? And some of that definition is a rejection of his super identity through Clark Kent. There's a loss of a father or father figure that, that really plays out meaningfully. Uh, and I think for all adolescents, that identity struggle is something we can all relate to in some level or another. We are aware of new physical capabilities in our bodies, new things that we can do, new feelings and experiences that haven't been felt before. And we're also acutely aware, sometimes in a very painful way of how much do we fit in? How much are we accepted by other people? And are people going to notice these changes to my body, my identity, to... So we try on different roles and identities. And I think young Clark Kent, and you see a lot of adolescent-based stories around Superman and his origin story, is trying to figure that out during his adolescent period. How do I come to grips with the way that physically I manifest and the physically the things that I can do that in some ways set me apart from other people. That my unique abilities, my strengths, my talents that I'm able to get sort of self-efficacy from are the very things that are distancing me or make me unique from others and maybe potentially rejected. So how do you come to grips with that? And you see him struggle with trying to use those powers for good and to help out other people, but also a sense of shame about being seen with those powers. And in ways he bounces back and forth between, do I show those? Can I use those to show off um, and impress other people? Or should I hide them? And should I hide away from society? And you see him try and balance back and forth between those things before he finally comes to a sort of integration and acceptance of, yes, I have these. Yes, they make me unique. But yes, I'm also a person who is related and integrated with other people in this world. If you don't understand the first act as establishing identity, then it's easy to have misapprehension about the structure and themes of Man of Steel. For example, thinking that the theme is whether Clark is going to choose to save anyone and then reverse engineering that misplaced assumption into criticism about the structure, alleging a lack of tension since we know Clark is going to save people from the oil rig on. That's a ridiculous criticism that analyzes the structure after presuming the theme rather than letting the structure inform what the filmmakers were trying to convey about the theme. The very first scene on Earth is Clark leaping into action, saving people, showing the choice to save people, has already been made and is without controversy. The filmmakers decided to show you this 
first intentionally because you're supposed to know this is his choice. This is who he is before viewing his childhood struggles. This heroic characterization is supposed to be in the back of your mind when viewing his childhood struggles and weighed against his future heroism. People who argue for a chronological order of the scenes without the oil rig first are committing a serious filmmaking crime, assuming that the audience is going to bring in a Superman bias from outside the film. How do you know that this character is going to be a hero unless you already assume it from outside the film? The childhood flashbacks on their own risk painting a picture of somebody who resents or despises the world. And if the audience is assuming that Clark is destined for good, that's importing external expectations from the larger Superman mythos. The filmmakers don't commit that mistake. Instead, the movie takes nothing for granted and shows you that Clark is destined for good. It doesn't assume that you're going to consider Clark a hero while watching his childhood based on outside influence. That means no outside assumptions or knowledge is required, and the film is accessible to non-Superman fans. The flashback structure shows adult Clark maintains his heroic heart through it all, somebody who is a hero through his past. Of course, the counter-argument is that if the childhood scenes didn't show overwhelming signs of heroism and hope, it should have, instead of reflecting on the difficulty of Clark's childhood. Instead, the argument is that a chronological telling of Clark's childhood should have been filled with heroism and the character building of his parents. Well, there's a ton of problems with that approach, but the two biggest ones are one, screen time demands that would change Man of Steel into Smallville the movie, and two, reducing the Kents into cartoon speeches and cliches instead of real parents with gradual day-to-day instilling of character. The point of the flashback structure is to show that he's affected by his past but not created by it. Superman does not let Krypton or his suffering define his entire existence. The choice is not whether to be a hero. The oil rig makes it clear that's not the choice, the tension, or the theme of the first act. The choice is about how being a hero is in tension with his search for identity. Put it another way, if Clark didn't care about saving people, or if he could deny his own heroic nature, then there's no tension. It's only because we're shown and told that he's going to be a hero that keeping his secret is a problem. If being a hero was the question mark and Clark didn't care, maintaining his secret would be much easier. It's because Clark isn't willing to sacrifice lives that he has to maintain his secret by sacrificing relationships and permanence. That's the tension. It's because he's heroic that he has an impulse to give his life meaning and why he wanders and isn't content to just sit quietly on the farm. It's a little strange that this is difficult for some to understand or imagine. I mean, even if being a parent is hard and a struggle, reflecting on that struggle or showing the difficulty of that on film doesn't suddenly mean that the character isn't a parent or that the struggle is with whether to be a parent or not. If you're watching a drama about a cop or a doctor, the struggle with the profession doesn't mean that the struggle is about whether to be in the profession or not. And so too it is with a hero. Just because a person has a superpower doesn't mean he might not have the same personal problems that you or I might have. Maybe he doesn't have enough money. There are so many things you can think of that round out the character and the personality so the superhero isn't just one or two dimensional. You want a three dimensional superhero who lives and breathes and worries and experiences things just the way you and I do except for the fact that he or she has a superpower. Clark is already shown to be the sort that saves, guards, and protects both in the present 
present and in the past. That's not the choice in question. Clark is a hero. Nonetheless, there are costs and consequences to that inclination. But that struggle is the drama, and the fact that that struggle exists doesn't suddenly make Clark not a hero. You can know what you are and what you're going to do, but still struggle with it. And it's a little crazy this needs to be spelled out, but you'll find endless variations of this criticism as if the film somehow broke Superman because being heroic didn't come without costs or consequences or downsides, and that any hesitation, struggle, or choice in relation to those costs or consequences suddenly made him not a hero. Part of the reason this criticism exists is the fundamental error in assuming that heroism must arise from some distinct psychological course or reason. Or in other words, heroism is something that can and should be easily explained. They look at the struggle in Man of Steel and can't convert it into something as neat as the death of Uncle Ben or the Waynes, and mistakenly think that the filmmakers have overlooked something. As comic book and genre fans, we have grown accustomed to the condensed and elegant superhero origin, typically springing from adversity or trauma and shaped into a tool for good. And from a broad perspective, that's a positive lesson, but it's not particularly realistic. If we really took and analyzed and broke down somebody like the Dark Knight and put them through the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, you'd see flags for mental illness or disorder, dissociative identity disorder, depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and so on. There are other things that aren't functioning so well about him, and one of those is kind of a split in his consciousness, that by becoming Batman, he has really withdrawn from his identity, and he's taking on sort of a new identity. And with that identity, he's become obsessed, you could almost say with vengeance. And he's become Batman more so than he is Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne in particular isn't a really interesting or likable person. Sure, he's wealthy, he's powerful, uh, philanthropic even, but there's not much to him. He doesn't have many, doesn't do so well in relationships, both romantic relationships or otherwise. And he's not even that likable. Even Bruce Wayne doesn't seem to like being Bruce Wayne. And he spends more of his time as Batman. And it's only in that sort of split off identity where he really tends to find himself in what he does. But then there are ways in which he obsesses over it and it comes at great cost because he can't really form stable relationships and it comes a great physical emotional toll for him people can begin to split off aspects of themselves because dealing with those events and trying to make sense of those events can lead people to what we call dissociate. They sort of withdraw from the stimuli going on in the world. However, in reality, the source of heroism or altruism is nowhere near as calculated, clear, or understood. To make Superman a real hero and truly altruistic means that he joins the legion of real heroes whose psychology motives, and reasons are still not fully understood, yet an undeniable fact of life. They exist, they're in your life, or you are that heroic person. It's a part of the human condition, which doesn't need to be explained by film, because in real life we lack this explanation. This is a realistic and nuanced approach to heroism, compared to cartoon motives or psychological complex. Consider the following Radiolab excerpts discussing the Carnegie Hero Fund. Yeah, let's go to the people who do the deeds. Yeah, people who do amazingly brave and heroic things. Yeah, and maybe find out, I don't know. What makes them different than the rest of us? Yeah. That question led us. 
Walter Rutkowski. To a guy named Walter Rutkowski. And I'm the executive director and secretary of the Carnegie Hero Fund Commission. Cool. Well, thanks for doing this. Okay. Can you just give us a, a, a little background on the Hero Fund? What is the Carnegie Hero Fund? The Carnegie Hero Fund is a private operating foundation that was established by Andrew Carnegie in 1904. And what we do is recognize civilian heroism throughout the United States and Canada by giving an award called the Carnegie Medal. And how do you guys choose your heroes? We judge the heroic acts against a uh, list of requirements. So then you have to have some kind of definition of hero, which includes some and excludes others. Yes. Perfect. A basic definition, which is a civilian. One. Meaning no military. Who voluntarily. Two. Leaves a point of safety. Three. To risk his own life or her own life. Four. To an extraordinary degree. Five. To save or to attempt to save the life of another human. Six. Why? Can you, hear, can you read that one more time? Okay, I wasn't reading. That just came from memory. So the oh, okay. Like, what is it that happens in a person's mind at that pivotal moment when they decide to voluntarily, voluntarily leave a point, of safety a point of safety and risk their life to an extraordinary degree to save the life of another human? That's what we wanted to know. Should we just jump in? Okay. So the first one we have on our list is uh, Laura Shrake. Okay. I am Laura Shrake. I am from Mattoon, Illinois, and I currently live in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Oh, wow. And I was driving through the country, and I saw a woman getting mauled by a bull in a pasture. The woman was on the ground, and the bull was... 950-pound Jersey bull. ...tossing her in the air and back on the ground. Wow. She was clearly struggling. And where were you? I was right on the other side of the fence, but... The fence was electric. So here's the moment that we find fascinating. At this point, Laura can either go forward through thousands of volts of electricity toward an angry bull that will likely maul her too, or she can stay safe. I went ahead and just climbed through the fence. And I don't remember ever feeling the electricity. She says by the time she got through... Crazily enough... A neighbor had shown up and threw her a piece of pipe. Maybe about two feet long. So she approached the woman... Who was still conscious. The whole time she's yelling at me, hit the bull in the face as hard as you can and don't stop. So Miss Shrake went up to the bull and uh, beat it repeatedly with this two-foot length of tubing. I think it distracted the bull enough where she was able to get out from under him. And as soon as we were outside the fence, looking back into the pasture, the bull was literally right there at the fence. Kicked the ground a few times and snorted. <laughs> he, was not ha- he was not happy. To our question. When you were there at that fence mm-hmm. and you had the choice to either stay put or to go through it, What was going through your mind? Was there a calculation there? No, I can't really say that. I mean... You didn't weigh your options or anything like that? I did not, no. It was just, here's the problem, here's what I need to do, and something needed to happen. Huh. So there was no choice moment? Not that I recall. No. If nobody came to this woman's rescue, she would die. Unfortunately... This is the usual explanation, says Walter. No explanation. I, I couldn't stand there and not do anything. 
I, w I was compelled to act. I didn't really take the time to think about what else could happen. Now, I can't say I ever really thought about my own life at that time. I mean, I Okay, we just jumped ahead because we thought we'd try again. That's the voice of the next Carnegie hero that uh, Walter told us about. Yeah, William David Pennell. My name's uh, William Pennell. Uh, who is the 8,362nd person to receive the Carnegie Medal. Bill, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, William David Pennell was 37 years old at the time of his heroic act in a uh, small town near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Monongahela, Pennsylvania. We was in bed sleeping and uh, my wife heard a loud crash. Mr. Pennell went outside his house. There was a, a very bad automobile accident. A car crashed head-on into a utility pole. Flames was like rippling up the windshield out from under the hood. And he responded to the scene wearing only sweatpants. No shoes or shirt or nothing on Bare-chested and barefoot. So here we are. Bill's standing in front of this ball of fire. There are three drunk teenagers inside that car, though he doesn't know it. He can either A, do nothing, or B, go in. Through the driver's door. Uh, Mr. Pennell entered the car a third time. By then, there was tires blowing the out. flames had grown to about three feet above the car's roof. The interior, like the headliner of the car and stuff, was dripping like plastic down on my back. Huh. Uh, I mean, I'm in there screaming, you know, somebody give me a hand in here. But nobody, nobody would help. I reached in and grabbed a hold of the kid that was in the back by the scruff of the neck and pulled him out. All right, so when you were coming out of your house and, and you're looking at that car, what was going through your head? Mm, well, just trying to try to help. I mean, I, 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 I did what any normal person would do. I mean, you know, I just kept saying, this is somebody's kid, you know what I mean? At the time, my daughter was like 16. And I'm saying to myself, you know, if something, God forbid, would ever happen to her, that I would hope someone would be there to help. Did you ever talk to your neighbors and ask them why they didn't come in there? Uh, you, know, you know what, that's it's funny you brought that up because, no, I've never, never brought it up. Never brought it up. How come? Uh, I don't know. I guess uh, maybe I probably wouldn't like their answer. I, I don't know. I, I don't know why I've never asked them out. What do you think is the difference between you and, and those other people who just sort of stood by? Uh, I, I couldn't answer that. I couldn't answer that. So our bull girl, she didn't know. This guy didn't really know either. Somebody must be able to tell us something about what they were thinking at that moment that allowed them, that gave them the courage to do what they did. I can't give you a definite answer as to what propels people to do this, no. But we took one more shot with Walter. And he told us about a case. It's the case of Wesley James Autry, a, a construction worker from uh, New York, 50-year-old man, who did jump into the uh, track bed in a subway station to remove a young man who had fallen onto the track. The gentleman was 6 foot, 180 pounds. He was inert, and yet Mr. Autry persisted despite the fact that a train was coming. There would come a point, at least in my estimation, where you would have to say, I have to get out of here because I'm going to be killed. I'm, I'm not suicidal. But Mr. Autry didn't think that way. He and I part in this manner. What he did was he lay atop the victim between the rails while the train passed over them. In the farthest reaches of my imagination, I can see myself jumping onto a subway track to attempt the rescue. What I can't see myself doing is lying atop the victim while the train passes over me. Making this story even more nuts? When we finally met up with Wesley Autry on the platform where this incident happened, 135th and Broadway, he explained to us that his daughters had been with him. was okay. This, this, them there. Showed us picture. Oh my God. Super cute. So when they're standing there and this guy starts convulsing and then eventually falls off the platform onto the tracks right as a train is coming. 
His choice is pretty stark. In order to save this complete stranger, he's got to leave his daughters behind, potentially without a dad. So he jumps, runs to the guy. Is he conscious? No, no. Tries to grab the guy's hand. And each time I grab this hand, we'll slip apart. And when he slip, I look up, the train is getting close. I 50 feet, elbows, 20 feet, 10 feet. And then it's right there. And all he can do is grab the guy, get him in a bear hug, and flatten his body against the guy as much as he can. The train car went right over and them. So he kept asking me, are we dead? Are we in heaven? I gave him a slight pinch on his arm. He's like, oh, just I see, you, you're very much alive. Wow. Have you, did you ever ask yourself at this point, like, what am I doing here? I well, mean, he asked it, what am I doing here? Well, what about you? Can I ask you a question? So it, it, the point at which you said you heard a voice yes. that said, I can do this. I can do this. What's, what, what is amazing to me is that he you was, left your daughters right here and dive after a guy you don't well, know. He was a stranger, total stranger. But you know what? The mission wasn't come completed. I was chose for that. You felt chose? Like you, I you felt were chosen. Ch I felt like I was the chosen one. But for a religious person, though, I would wonder, why me? Well, what you know what? Maybe 20 years ago, I was supposed to be at a certain point. And then he explained to us exactly why he had jumped. He was the one guy who could. He said right before his feet left the platform, this one specific moment from his life flashed to mind. This thing that happened, I had a gun pulled to my temple, but, you know, it was a misfire, so... You know, a gun was put to your head and yes. missed. So you were almost dead for a oh, second. I was or two. almost dead. You know. Oh, so you think you might have been spared for a purpose? I was spared for a reason. After that moment, he says, when the gun went click and he didn't die, he always wondered why had God spared him that moment until he was on the platform and he saw the guy fall off. He says, then he knew this is why I, I can do this. It's just I can do this. I can do this. That voice, when that voice said that you're gonna be okay, I knew everything was gonna work out. You know what I think at the end of the day? What's that? I don't think that there's an answer to the question we asked. I don't think... The hero question? Why were you a hero? I don't think that any three of these heroes... I mean, the last one had the longest explanation. He had been selected for some purpose, but does he know why he was well, chosen? Not a clue. See, I, I, guy number three gives me something. What does he give you? Okay, so the first two, right? Yeah. They have no idea. None. So there's just something in them that made them act. But guy number three... He's talking about circumstances. Mm. Like the world prepared him for that moment. Mm. Serendipity. So it makes me think, well, what if uh, circumstances are just right? Maybe any of us could do that. I get, I get a mailman. He, he used to say to me all the time, he says, how did you manage to do that up there? How did you manage to pull them kids out? I don't know if I could have done that. I said, well, you know what? Don't say you wouldn't do this or you wouldn't do that till you're put in that situation. In fact, when we asked Walter, how many uh, nominations do you get a year? Are they hard to find? No, they are not hard at all to find. Uh, we are fortunate to be living in a society, regardless of what you hear elsewhere, we are fortunate to be living in a society where people do look out for others, even strangers. He told us they've even had to up their guidelines to make it harder to win. Simply because of the vast number of heroic deeds that uh, happen in day-to-day -day life. So realistic heroism, which genuinely exists and can be encountered in this world, isn't something that can be chewed up, pre-digested, and spat out to be spoon-fed to audiences who think that altruism can only arise from trauma, tragedy, or comic book compulsion. 
It's something yet to be fully quantified and reasonably sidestepped by the filmmakers, lest they turn Superman into nothing but the product of cliches. This was a deliberate choice to show that this heroic nature was in him before the costume, before the cape, before the alien name and heritage, and even before full adult maturity. Note that the Carnegie Hero Fund specifically targets heroes with no explicit duty to act, but it doesn't account for the thousands upon thousands of people who make it their job and their calling to be heroes. As first responders, in service to their country, fighting injustice or inequality, treating the sick, and more. While some of them may have or retroactively construct for themselves an origin story, it's typically inapplicable. The filmmakers made that calculated choice, and by refusing to give Superman a cartoon origin to his heroism, he better reflects the men and women in society who truly are heroes and who we can aspire to be. People who might have experienced trauma or tragedy, but are not driven or compelled by it. Tribulation may be a part of their story, but it's not always the origin of it. In fact, the film is careful to show that Superman isn't the sole and exclusive source of heroism. They show us the servicemen who gave their lives for the protection of others, the courage, the conviction, and the sacrifice of his fathers, Lois Lane's repeated feats of bravery, a scientist who volunteers for a mission from which he doesn't return, and a newspaper editor who tries to rescue and comfort one of his own. And taking it to another level, heroism isn't the exclusive domain of the likable, even the hard Colonel Hardy and the lecherous Steve Lombard show that possibility and potential to be a force for good. This isn't a fairy tale where only nice guys get to show selflessness. Only those with an origin story get to be heroes. And that's some of the hope of Man of Steel and part of the subconscious appeal of Superman. That with a shirt rip, any one of us can show our inner heroic self and that the trappings that we enjoy about Superman aren't necessary or sufficient conditions for heroism. Or to put it another way, they shouldn't be your handicap or your excuse. To be a hero, you don't need perfect parents. You don't need to be raised perfect to lead a perfect, tragedy-free life or to be faultless or morally perfect. Now, those may be good and desirable and aspirational things, but they aren't the exclusive source of heroism. Those who practice character are more likely to demonstrate it under pressure. Wesley Autry, the 50-year-old construction worker that saved that stranger on a subway, was a Navy veteran. But everyone has the potential to demonstrate character. Superman is so good at that principle that sometimes we take the Superman mythos for granted and simply assume that his idyllic childhood would of course forge a hero. However, Superman has every excuse not to be one. As the last survivor of a doomed planet, orphaned, different, misunderstood, and alone. But Superman doesn't let those define his actions. He doesn't let the differences between himself and the people in his life become an insurmountable distance. Instead, he focuses on the connections and the bridges that they do have, so much so that we can forget how alone he could be. You don't need a comic book origin to be a hero, and you shouldn't let the lack of one stop you from being one. You can aspire and be a hero today. You can be the first to act and inspire others too, to be an encouragement, to show kindness, compassion, and assistance, and to get involved and be more than a bystander, whether or not you come from Krypton or Kansas.
That same myopic perspective that demands an origin for heroism is perhaps the same that lacks the basic empathy or understanding of the human condition to imagine or understand the trauma of killing. Tragically, a common criticism is that the psychology of killing wasn't built up throughout the film to justify Superman's reaction after Zod's death. And I don't think a sophisticated film needs to explain or spoon-feed the human condition to its audience. The film reasonably assumes that the audience has some basic domain knowledge about how people may react to taking a life without need for explanation or exposition. Moreover, just like heroism, it remains the realm of psychology and not something fully known or understood, which even could be predigested or spoon-fed, unless compromises were made to make the reaction cartoonish and overly simplistic. Even soldiers with training are still creatures of conscience, and they may experience complex emotional reactions, even in self-defense or the defense of others, before and after taking a life. Consider this opening excerpt from Soldiers of Conscience. At some point, every soldier has to face the question, will I be able to kill another human being in combat? This film is about killing in war and about some U.S. soldiers who have chosen not to. The evidence is that far more soldiers refuse to kill than we might expect. In World War II, research by the official U.S. Army historian, Brigadier General S.L.A. Marshall, revealed that among U.S. soldiers in combat, less than 25% actually fired their weapons at the enemy. Even with their own lives at risk, 75% did not try to kill the enemy. Marshall wrote, the average individual still has such an inner resistance toward killing a fellow man that he will not take life if it is possible to turn away from that responsibility. At the vital point, he becomes a conscientious objector. I should mention that my grandfather was in the military and my father was in the military and we spent our early childhoods on military bases around the world. After his service, my dad went on to get a PhD in electrical engineering and never spoke about his tour. In episode 15, Understanding Jonathan, I raised the fact that he would have been age 18 at the height of the Vietnam War draft and were never told explicitly one way or the other whether Jonathan served or toured. But if Man of Steel takes its notes from Mark Wade's birthright, that was a part of Pa Kent's experience. And depending on what he saw or experienced, imagine how that would have shaped his upbringing of Clark a decade later. Contrast Clark's experience with Lois, who had reported on warfare firsthand, and Jorel, whose talents allow us to infer somebody who has fought before. And we can see their more seasoned reactions when they did what was necessary. When something is part of the human experience, you don't, and sometimes can't, explain it in the course of a narrative that's not a about that topic. In real life, all we get are glimpses. We act and react, speak or stay silent, and rarely do we spell out our psychology for some unseen audience to consume and digest what we're thinking. With Man of Steel's cinema verite approach, we don't get the comic book convention of thought bubbles or narration boxes. Nonetheless, what the characters do and don't say, and how they say it, gives us insight into their thoughts and their attitudes. And we'll go into that in more depth when we come back to the commentary on the conversation in the truck 
struck right before the tornado. Now, ironically, the human condition accounts for critics who lack empathy and have unreasonable expectations that the film would explain selflessness or give cartoonish motivations for it. And note that the film essentially predicts this lack of sympathy and understanding in a part of the population. While we only slightly touched on the heaviness of taking human life, I want to leave you with a more amusing rendering of prejudice and a reminder that few of these arguments are new to the Superman mythos. The following clips are from Superman on Trial, originally broadcast in 1988 by the BBC. Jimmy, to your knowledge, has Superman ever used his great strength to hurt anyone? But if he catches you doing something bad, committing a crime, he'll exercise enough force to stop you. So he uses his powers to injure and maim human beings. No way, Mr. Luther. Minimum force, that's all. Minimum force? I tell you, boy, people think I'm lucky to own half of Metropolis. I'm lucky it's still standing with this clumsy oaf crashing through walls and drop of a hat. Your Honor, Superman seldom damages property, and even then only when lives are at stake. Ah! You are Adam West, actor. Yes. And you played Batman in the TV series of the same name? That's correct. Well, to my knowledge, uh, Superman has not gratuitously gone around on the streets beating up people. But you wouldn't read these publications if they had no artistic merit? Uh, I think there is an imaginative aspect to creative aspect that's very good. So you wouldn't dismiss graphic novels as too graphic? Or would you happily go back to the comic books of yesteryear? No. I'd like to see things as uh, a blend, a synergism, a combination. In other words, keep developing, keep imaginative, keep changing, keep progressing. Thank you. No further questions? Superman belongs to the world. My mission now is to help my fellow human beings, but never to upset the delicate system of checks and balances which preserve freedom and order in my earthly home. If I have failed in that, then indeed I am guilty as charged. <laughs> What is that commotion at the back of the courtroom? Uh, just Adam West leaving, Your Honor. Can you identify the cloak figure who is shaking hands with him? Oh, indeed I can, Your Honor. And if it please the court, the defense would like to enter this gentleman as a witness. He's just arrived from Gotham City. I'll allow it. The Dark Knight arrives to help the Man of Steel. How exciting. The witness will identify himself. I am known as the Batman. Wait a moment. The prosecution has some questions for this witness. There's nothing I can tell you which will support your case, Luther. Don't be too sure, Batman. I was beginning to think the evidence provided by comic magazines to convict Superman was inconclusive. But seeing you here, I realize the opposite is true. Luther, just ask the questions. Batman, you and Superman have traditionally been portrayed as close friends, have you not? We share a common objective. To clear the world of pollution. Your kind of pollution, Luther. The witness will confine himself to answering the council's question. <laughs> this uh, cozy relationship between you and Superman is not all it's cracked up to be, is it? Your Honor, what has all this to do with the case? Is it true, Batman, that your first encounter with Superman was the time when he attempted to arrest you as an outlaw? Yes, it is true. As it happens, Superman and I have since become allies in a common cause. Really? 
And what about the conversations you had with the comic magazine author Frank Miller? Conversations that led to the creation of the graphic novel The Dark Knight, which featured a damning portrait of Superman as a puppet of a reactionary and warmongering U.S. government. It, it wasn't something that had happened. I was just concerned that it might happen. There are people, governments, who'd give anything to seduce him to their cause. They detect a certain gullibility in his innocence. That's what you're really afraid of, isn't it, Batman? Superman's no more than a, a, a biddable boy scout. Eventually, he'd have to form allegiances. He'd have to be controlled. Ultimately, he'd have to interfere. In human affairs, yes. That scares me. I'd have to stop him, somehow. He couldn't be allowed to declare himself like that. It would be the end of any hope for mankind. An end to any freedom. God, Batman, you really mean this? A sworn testimony? Sorry, Miss Lane, I have to tell the truth. I can see how Superman's presence on Earth could constitute interference in human affairs. A crime against humanity. Okay, I think I've rambled on long enough. Here are some shows I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, the Kara's World Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Bragg, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff, and if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener, and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got questions you want answered, or insights that you want to share, or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes or Stitcher, and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son.